welcome to episode 53 of So Important, the Interview Podcast. We are back from a short break with a special guest, Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Dr. Joshua Angrist. Josh is the co-founder and director of MIT's Blueprint Labs and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Dr. Angrist taught at Harvard and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem before coming to MIT in 1996. Josh received his BA from Oberlin College in 1982 and completed his PhD in economics at Princeton in 1989. In dozens of studies and publications, Josh has explored the economics of education and school reform, the impact of social programs on the labor market, immigration and its labor market effects, and many other topics. Highly respected in his field, Josh came to national prominence in 2021 when he and two colleagues received the Nobel Prize in Economics for their work focused on harnessing the power of natural experiments to examine important economic questions, literally transforming economic research. Josh's journey is a fascinating and inspiring one, to say the least. A less-than-stellar student in high school who transformed himself into a Nobel Prize-winning economist. Josh and I have known each other since the 1970s when we met in high school in Pittsburgh and then reunited at Oberlin College when I came over there for my junior and senior years. We last saw each other in the 1990s when Josh was in Israel, and I am very much looking forward to the opportunity to reconnect. But Josh, enough of my talking. Welcome to the show. Great to see you, Monty. Thanks for having me on. Well, absolutely. We have a lot to talk about here. Um, Yes, we do. Yeah, so thank you for being my guest. And as I've mentioned, uh, we've known each other back from the Pittsburgh days. You were a good friend, always intelligent and engaging. And I assumed that you were just cruising through your classes. And certainly you always had time to cut classes with me. And we did that on many occasions, as I'm sure you remember. But as I've been delving into your story, I'm getting the feeling that my recollections may not be exactly correct. Uh, We spent most of high school in Frick Park, as I recall. Uh, The big park, Pittsburgh has beautiful parks, and we took advantage of that. And then I left as as in 11th grade. I figured out that the minimum requirements for a diploma were health, gym, and English. And I took two two of each of those classes when I was a junior in high school. And I took the easy version. I dropped out of the college track. And that way I was able to get my diploma. And that, that's where our paths kind of diverged for a while. But then eventually you came to Oberlin College where I was uh, doing my BA. What did you do after 11th grade while I was still working away at Alderdice? <laughs> I went to work. I wanted to work. I wanted to have money. You know, looking back on it, I'm not sure why I thought that was so important, but I did like work and I did like having an income. I had had various part-time jobs since I was about 13. And uh, I had done some work, you know, at the summer camp. Uh, I think you also went to the JCC summer camp, did you? I don't remember. I did, yeah. And we used to have a summer session where we would work with mentally handicapped people. And I liked that a lot. So I decided to go do that full time so I could have a little income. And I had a car. I needed to support my my car. That was part of why I needed money. My car was constantly breaking down and it only got six miles to the gallon. And the insurance was terribly expensive because I would wreck it a lot. So I thought, well, let me just go get a job and make some money. Anyway, I didn't like school. The only thing I liked about school was shop class silk screening and well, it's a silk screen. It was called print shop. And I learned how to set type and and, uh, do some graphic arts. So I, I, anyway, I, I left school and, and worked full time, you know, for about 18 months. Then I figured out I should probably go to college, that I wasn't going to make very much money and there wasn't much of a career path. I did like it. 
And at what point did you go to Israel? Well, I went to Israel much, much later. My work experience was between college and high school. And then in, in Oberlin, where I did my BA, I spent my junior year at the London School of Economics, which was my first time overseas. Fortuitously, I took a spring break in 1981 in Israel. And I have a lot of family in Israel, and I connected with those people. They were uh, kibbutz pioneers, and I really enjoyed meeting them and sort of briefly visiting their world. And I, I decided to go back. And I don't know if you remember Mike Drescher, a good friend of ours. Mike had spent his junior year in Jerusalem. And so when I visited Israel, I hung out with Mike and we traveled together hitchhiking up and down Israel and into the Sinai. And Mike had a similar reaction to Israel. So we said together, we said, well, we'll go back to Israel after we graduate from college. And we did that. And uh, I was initially a student at Hebrew University, and Mike was working at the university. And we weren't that happy with what we were doing, neither one of us, but we liked living in Israel. In the meantime, I had met my future wife, Mira, and he had met his future wife, Yosefa. So we kind of quit what we were doing. We became Israeli citizens, and we got drafted. And we served in the army together for two years. Well, we weren't together most of the time. Initially, we were together. Then we were separated. And you were in the artillery. No, I was a paratrooper. And then initially, I wasn't going to get into the paratroop because my eyesight was too poor. There was sort of a minimum standard, and I had a higher level of myopia. But I appealed the uh, medical, uh, it was sort of a committee that decided your fitness. And I appealed to that committee, and I was granted a second look. And then there was this Argentinian uh, medic who was kind of not very much of a stickler, and he was willing to look the other way while I memorized the eye chart. So I was able to up my profile there and get into the paratroopers. So that's where I did my service. What a wonderful story. And how do you, when you look back on your Israel experience now, what do you think about it? Well, it was life-changing for me, not particularly the military service. So I, I, my military service was fine, and it was the sort of challenge I was looking for. I had been a successful college student. You remember Oberlin had an honors program, and I did honors in economics. And I wrote a thesis, actually, as an undergraduate. And I had been invited by the outside examiner, uh, a very distinguished professor named Orly Ashenfoder from Princeton. He had said I could go to Princeton if I wanted, but I didn't do that. I sort of needed to get this out of my system to do something else that was a little more real world. And by the time I got out of the army, I was ready for graduate school. That was the big salutary effect of military service. No matter how difficult graduate school was, the army was harder and bleaker in some ways. And so, you know, my spirits remained very high in graduate school. But also by the time I got out of the army, uh, Mira and I had gotten married and, you know, I was a little more mature. And you ended up taking up him up on his offer and you ended up at Princeton. That's right. I did my PhD at Princeton. Mira and I moved to Princeton from Israel and uh, we had a wonderful time there. Our daughter was born while we were there. Mira was working in a psychiatric hospital in Trenton, which was quite challenging. But uh, Adi, uh, my daughter, our daughter was born at that hospital. And we had a lot of great experiences. But for me, it was a wonderful experience also for sort of training in my field. I was working with wonderful scholars that were doing exciting work. And I couldn't have been happier than to be where I was. I, w I really wanted to work with Aschenfelder. And then I met David Card, who ultimately I ended up sharing the Nobel with. Nobel is joint with Card and Imbens. So Card became another advisor. And uh, I had a third thesis advisor Princeton, at Princeton, a man named Whitney Newey, who's now my colleague at MIT. Uh, I, I had wonderful experiences at Princeton, and I, I really got into the kind of research that ultimately 
I've spent my life doing. Going back to the Oberlin days when you were in that study, Carol, which I remember because you graciously let me join you there many times. And I always thought that was the coolest thing. And I always appreciated it. When Uh, I was doing my honors thesis. Yeah. We yeah. had a little office. Yeah, in which the library. Which was unusual because Oberlin yeah. is just, it's a college. It's not a university. There are no PhD students there. So the sort of, you're, you're at the top of the student hierarchy. You're invited to do honors and you get an office. And yeah, you would hang with me there in the office on the fourth floor of Mud Library. And, uh, you know, we could look out over Wilder Bowl at all the uh, younger students playing Frisbee and stuff. And by then I'm, I was into being a serious scholar. That was a, a great experience for me. I really liked that. You know, as it happens, I think it's not necessarily true for many people who go on to be academics, but the kind of work that I did as an undergraduate on my thesis is ultimately, you know, what I do now, it's kind of similar to that in some ways. So I figured that out. I'm very lucky that I found that, you know, kind of pretty early. And even though I had that detour to Israel and the army and everything, I did come back to that. And I got excellent training in that. And I just continued to be very engaged with empirical labor economics and applied econometrics. Let's talk about that a little bit. That seems to be the basis for the work that you did that led you to the to the Nobel Prize. How did that evolve? Well, I think it'd be helpful to kind of give some context for people who don't maybe have a background in economics. You know, what, what I do and the work that the prize discusses is I try to use naturally occurring events and readily available data sets, not necessarily readily available to public, but sort of available scholars to estimate causal effects in a situation where the kind of question that I'm interested in is, is something that could be answered by a randomized trial. You know, the best way to get at cause and effect in human affairs is to randomly assign groups to be treated differently. And in fact, that's how it's done in medicine. Uh, And I'll mention parenthetically, you know, trials have kind of risen to prominence in public view because of the pandemic. Everybody was following the randomized trials on vaccines. And the way those trials work is volunteers are recruited and then they're randomly assigned to either get vaccine or placebo. And because they're randomly assigned, the groups that get vaccine and placebo are sure to be comparable, not at the level of individuals, but on average. As it happens, I volunteered for the Moderna mRNA trial in 2020, and so I'm actually in that experiment. I was assigned to placebo, but I didn't get COVID, which just shows that the outcomes for an individual don't prove anything. Anyway, back to what I do. I try to estimate cause and effect in scenarios where you can't do random assignment, either because it's impractical or it involves past events or it would be too disruptive to people's lives. So one of the first questions I studied with the kind of natural experiments methodology that discussed in the prize citation is the effect of serving in the military. Is it a good idea to serve in the military? Do you benefit from that? Or are you harmed by that? And benefit or harm here are measured in terms of labor market outcomes, but also maybe health. You know, does it hurt your health or is there a benefit? You know, they teach you to get up in the morning and you get a lot of exercise. So maybe that's ultimately good for you. On the other hand, you know, you're exposed to combat, though most soldiers are not combat soldiers. And there's a mix of effects there. You get some benefits in the United States. The government pays for all soldiers college through the GI Bill. That's still true. So a great sort of illustration of the challenge in estimating the effects of military services, if you look at the cohorts that are old enough to have served during World War II. These are men born in the late 1920s. Among those birth cohorts, the men who served lived longer than the men who didn't. So does that mean that military service benefited them and somehow made them healthier? Could be, 
But another explanation would be, well, if you were born in 1925 and you're a male and you didn't serve in World War II, that's usually because you had a health problem. And those health problems tend to shorten lives. So it's not a randomized trial because veterans and non-veterans have different health for reasons that have nothing to do with military service. So the solution to that in my world is to come up with some sort of natural experiment that changes the probability of military service randomly. I discovered that experiment uh, with the guidance of my thesis advisor, Orly Ashenfelder, who actually suggested it, in the Vietnam-era draft lottery. So it turns out that men who were born between 1950 and 53 were given a random priority for military service based on their birthdays. So if you were born in 1950, all the birthdays in 1950 from 1 to 365, maybe 366 since it's a leap year, were given a random number. And then the men with random number one were called first, the men with random number two were called second, and they got up to number 195 and they didn't call anybody with a higher number than that. So men with low draft lottery numbers are called for pre-induction processing. They may still get out of it if they have health problems and there's some educational deferments. Men with high draft lottery numbers above 195 will not be drafted, but they could still volunteer. So it's all kind of messy. But the lottery is definitely randomly assigned. So I figured out how to exploit that sort of situation to estimate causal effects as if it were a randomized trial, to turn it into a randomized trial. And the tool that I used for that is called instrumental variables. And it's a particular econometric technique that's been around a long time, maybe 100 years. But I was one of the first people to use it in this way to kind of solve the problem of selection bias, non-random selection and estimate causal effects. And the other thing that I ended up doing, and this is the work with Hiro Imbens, who with whom I share the prize, in fact. The prize has two parts, sort of one for Card and the second part for his empirical work, and one for me and Imbens on methodology. Hiro and I kind of developed a mathematical model that allows a very rigorous and clear answer to the question, how should we interpret estimates of the effects of military service in a world where, yes, the draft lottery affects the probability of service, but some people are unaffected. So that kind of complicates things. So we developed a kind of a language, a mathematical language, and proved a bunch of theorems that answer the question, how should those estimates be interpreted? And our theorems show that the estimates are indeed useful and interesting. As I listen to what you say, and I think, how does it make sense to me? What I hear is that you saw some flaws in the traditional uh, research methods. You looked a level, a level deeper and you said, mm-hmm. what's wrong with this? Why isn't it, you know, is this really a reliable result? Well, there's, not, no, I would, well, there's nothing wrong with experiments, but experiments are limited. We're not going to run clinical trials on military service. And there are other things where there's few or no clinical trials. Uh, Labor economists have long been interested in how uh, childbearing affects female earnings and employment. Well, we could answer that question by randomly assigning some women to have three children and randomly assigning some women to have two children. But of course, nobody's going to do that experiment. It's not practical. It's not ethical. But there are things in the world that kind of mimic that experiment, and I develop methods to exploit them. So, you know, the draft lottery is an example. What's being manipulated is military service. In the case of female childbearing, I have two good experiments for that. One is the event of having a twin birth. So if your second born is a multiple, you automatically have a larger family, and twinning is roughly rarely assigned. Another experiment for family size is sibling sex composition. Uh, I like to joke that in some countries, parents prefer sons. That's not true in the United States. In the United States, parents would like a diversified sibling sex portfolio 
which means that if they have two boys or two girls, they're more likely to have a third child than they have one of each. And in fact, the family I grew up in is exactly on track with that. As you know, I'm the oldest of three. I have a second-born brother, Misha, and my mother wanted a girl. And because she had two boys, she had a third child. And that's our youngest brother, Ezra. At that point, she gave up. (laughs) But because the sex of a child is randomly assigned at birth, the event of two boys or two girls is, is randomly assigned like a clinical trial, and it's correlated with ultimately with family size. And so I can exploit that to estimate the effects of childbearing on female labor market outcomes like earnings. You're looking at naturally occurring events Nat- and what they say, as opposed to setting up a controlled experiment. Exactly. Because the things I want to study, unlike the Moderna vaccine, which, you know, they could set it up, they can find 30,000 volunteers and they can invite them to the local hospital. And then at the last minute, they toss a coin and they give some vaccine and some placebo. Well, that works for vaccines, but it doesn't work for military service. It doesn't work for how many kids I have. It doesn't work for what sort of school I go to. So now I do a lot of research on schools. And I run a lab with Parag Pathak and David Otter at MIT, where we study various educational reform policies, you could say, things like vouchers and charter schools and resources. Some of those things, there is the occasional experiment, but mostly not. So we need to be clever. We need to find our experiment. So this turned out to be very impactful research. Yeah, I like to think so. I guess I'm not an objective (laughs) observer of that. But, you know, in terms of the scientific world, we get cited and, and people build on our work. And whenever there's a policy discussion related, for example, to education, we also, our research is very important and gets covered in the media. It, it's great stuff to learn about. And let's let's talk about the Nobel Prize a little okay. bit. Okay. Did you know that you were in contention for a Nobel Prize? Is that how well, it works? Or did you get a phone call one day and say, hey, guess what? You know, it, it's crazy to wait for your Nobel Prize because, you know, most people don't win. And some people will say, have said to me, oh, you should win a Nobel Prize. We think you should win a Nobel Prize. Of course, many people have said that to many other people, and you shouldn't count on it. The way that it works is you don't know until you get the phone call, you know, very early in the morning. uh, And it's always on the the American holiday that used to be called Columbus Day. So you know know that on the morning of Columbus Day, if you're going to win a Nobel Prize, you're going to get a call very early in the morning. But I don't leave my cell phone on when I sleep, and I don't do that on the night before Columbus Day either. In fact, I had gone to Cape Cod because I like to sail, and October is kind of the end of the sailing season. So that's the last day you can rent a small boat and go sailing. So I was down at Cape Cod, and then I got up to go to the bathroom, you know, real early in the morning, as men our age do. And I do I know. Saw that I have all these messages, so I thought, whoa, you know, I better follow up on this. I got a lot. I had hundreds of text messages. What did you do when you found out? I ordered a cup of coffee so I could gather my thoughts. I remember the coffee machine in the room didn't work, which was a great frustration, source of great frustration to me. And I had missed the call from Sweden. And by then I had the calls from other people. And, you know, one concern is maybe it's a hoax. So I called another friend who had previously won the Nobel Prize. And I said, you know, who should I call in Sweden to find out if this is right? And he said, don't call Sweden, call the MIT press office and they'll know. If, and he said, anyway, it's true. <laughs> well, let me be among many who have congratulated you on your Thank Nobel you. Prize. Thank you. Yeah, it's so a lot of fun. Get- but, um, by the time, you know, 
I got back to my house in Brookline. It's about an hour and a half drive. You know, my wife was being swarmed with uh, media and cameras. And as it happens, our granddaughter was sleeping over. So it was a pretty hectic scene. I'll bet it was. And yeah. But you didn't get to go to Sweden. No, though I'm going to Sweden next week as it happened. So we weren't invited. The usual thing is the prize winners come and there's this very formal event. Now they're going to have people in December, the three cohorts, the two COVID cohorts, plus the 2022 will be invited this December. And I'll go to that. But in the meantime, you know, I have some friends who are academics in Sweden and they invited the three laureates to come give some talks in May of this year. And so we're doing that uh, as it happens. We're doing that next week. How has it changed your life if, in fact, it has at all? I should also mention I, I got the, we got the medal in Washington, D.C., and that was a plus for me because my parents who are still alive were able to come to that. And that was very special for them. I'm, I'm doubly blessed that I'm a Nobel Prize winner and that I'm young enough that my parents can appreciate it. That's um, great. I remember your parents very well. I, I remember one thing very specific. I remember a lot of things about your parents, but I remember uh, your father gave us a dispensation to drink beer on Passover. And that has been a tradition that I have carried on to this day. That dispensation holds. Yep, Absolutely. <laughs> I remember when he gave it to I us. Think it, I think it's a Sephardic. <laughs> I think so. Well, I know you've quoted Maimonides in places, yeah. so you would know. Anyway, has it changed your life? To be honest, I've tried to not let it change my life. So I like what I do. I like my life. I, I have a wonderful job. I, ha I work for MIT. Uh, couldn't be better employer for somebody like me. I love teaching and doing research, and I'm trying to keep that up. Uh, I do now have these other demands on my time. I'm expected to speak at various things that are maybe more for a public that's not, you know, my scholarly peers. And I try to accommodate that. As it happens, I'm commencement speaker at our, our alma mater, Oberlin College. So that's an example uh, this year on June 5th. So that's an example of the kind of thing that I get asked to do now. For something like that, I have and other sort of events. I try to be a little more picky and save my time for other things. What's next? Well, I hope more of the same. So uh, I'm excited about the research I do. Uh, we have a thriving lab called Blueprint Labs, and we have many projects going, going on. And, um, you know, that hasn't slowed down. We have a wonderful staff. We just got some more space. We're expanding. Uh, I also have a startup, an ed tech startup. Uh, called Avella. The startup is devoted to uh, helping school districts and other people with matching problems solve those in a very uh, friendly and equitable way. A lot of uh, large urban districts in the United States, this is related to the work we do on schools, use game theory, actually. They use algorithms to match students to schools to try to get kids into their first choice schools or something that they rank highly. And there's a need for software to solve those problems. So, uh, and it turns out that it's not only schools. We help Teach for America place their interns. Uh, we help the military assign cadets to training. And uh, just this month, we're having a seed round. It's been very successful. And uh, actually, I put my prize money, my Nobel Prize money into the Avella enterprise, which I very much believe in. I wish we had more time to talk about that. It's, it's fun. It's fun to have um, you know, a foot in the real world. No, it sounds like you're doing some great things and it sounds like you're busy. And I really appreciate that you found a half an hour to chat with me today. Of course. Great to see you. Absolutely. Great right show. back at you. I'm a big fan. I appreciate that. And uh, I'm now a big fan of yours. Thank you, Josh. Okay. My pleasure, Monty.